Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Lisa Barrett is a neuroscientist, professor of psychology at Northeastern University, and the author of How Emotions Are Made, a book about the secret life of the brain. Lisa takes what I thought I knew about emotion and turns it upside down. There's a difference between what we think is happening and what is actually happening, and we're not as good at reading people as we think. We'll get into deciphering what the sensations in our body actually mean and how our brain interprets them. We talk about something called the body budget, how our brain runs it, and why we should learn to look at our bodies in this way. It was so cool to get into the science behind how our brain infers affect and emotion and uses past experiences to understand what the sensations in our body mean. And so part of the story here is that, you know, you're never reading someone's expression. You're just guessing at what their movements mean. Let's cut to my chat with Lisa Barrett. Can you take us through the classical view of emotions? Sure. You know what I'm going to say is a bit of a caricature, but it's mostly true. The idea for a long time has been that we are born with a set of circuits in our brains, emotion circuits that we share with each other and with some other animals on this planet. And that something might happen in the world like you see a snake or someone speaks to you in a particular way or you are watching a movie and you see a particular scene unfold and that this triggers one of these circuits, let's say a fear circuit. And this fear circuit in your brain causes you 
to make a particular facial expression, like maybe you widen your eyes and uh, gasp. And the circuit also causes you to have a particular change in your body. So maybe your heart rate goes up. Maybe you freeze or maybe you have the urge to run away, to flee. And the idea is that these reactions are universal around the world and that you can just look at someone's face or look at their body posture and read the emotion uh, they're having in their face or in their body movements. And the assumption is that most of the time these reactions are very diagnostic. So not every time you're fearful, you'll you'll try to flee or freeze. You know, sometimes you might do other things, but most of the time, so there might be a little bit of variability, but most of the time, these they're sort of automatic reactions and they cause you these emotions to do and say and feel things that sometimes you would rather not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that can be ill-advised, let's just say. And that's the classical view. It's a deeply uh, embedded view in our culture, in our legal system, in lots of societal, it has lots of societal roots, let's say. Right. Well, it has societal roots. It seems to be the systemic belief and then also this tightly held personal belief, right? That we're governed by our emotions and that these things are outside of our control. Yeah, it's rooted in this belief that comes right from the beginning of, Western civilization, that you are an animal. You have this lurking inner beast that has to be tamed by your rational side. And that's really the foundation of human nature. You you have a mind or a brain that's at war with itself, mm-hmm. where your emotions and your cognitions or your rational side are battling it out for the control of your behavior. And you can see this sort of narrative is in many different religious beliefs. It, again, it's in the law, it's in economics, mm-hmm. it's in most of the societal institutions that we w- live with every day. Mm-hmm. Are it, you know have this kind of idea about human nature deeply rooted in them? And it, as you as you explain, it can have life and death connotations, right? Like a someone who's in a court of law who fails to express remorse visibly on their face might receive the death penalty rather than a life in prison. Yeah. So it's in, from a research standpoint, it's very well known that in capital cases where juries have to make a decision between awarding life in prison and awarding the death penalty to a defendant who's been found guilty of a capital crime, the main determinant in what juries decide is whether or not they believe the defendant is remorseful. Mm-hmm. And if you believe that emotions are universal and they have these universal facial displays and universal body postures, then you should be able to look at anyone from anywhere in the world and determine what their emotional state is by just looking at their face. And unfortunately, that's really not how it works. And for me, this was brought to life really vividly during the trial of Dokart Tsarnaev, who was convicted of the Boston Marathon bombings. And I should point out that my office and my laboratory are about a mile from where the bombs went off. Tsarnaev was caught about a mile and a half from my house. 
We were in lockdown for several days. It was a very scary time. Mm-hmm. I had many friends who were actually at the Boston Marathon during the bombing. So what I'm about to say isn't really, I'm not weighing in on his guilt or innocence. Clearly he's guilty uh, of what of doing something very, very bad and harmed many, many people. However, in the United States, the Supreme Court has stated that in order to get a fair trial, you have to be able to know the heart and mind of the defendant. You have to be able to infer, clearly infer that person's intention. And as we talked about before, juries make decisions about life in prison versus the death penalty based on whether they believe the defendant is is remorseful. Well, Dr. Sanayev did not display American version of remorse in his trial. Right. He didn't cry. There was no expression of a verbal expression or facial display of grief or or regret. Instead, he was very stoic. And so he was found guilty as he should be, but he was also sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. And What's interesting about this case from a scientific standpoint is that he comes from a very Chechen, it comes from a a Chechen culture, which is a culture of honor, where the most honorable thing that you can do in defeat, the way you honor your your enemy who's who's bested you, is to remain stoic, Mm -hmm. to not flail, to not cry, to not demonstrate overtly or in an exaggerated way, your your distress. And so there is a way to understand his behavior as actually being remorseful in a culturally appropriate way from, from, from his culture. As it turns out, you know, he apparently had written letters of regret and remorse and apology to all of his victims, which was evidence that was kept out of court. So I'm not actually saying, you know, what he does or doesn't deserve. I wasn't a juror. I didn't hear all the evidence. I'm just saying as a scientist, he was doing something that was probably culturally appropriate for his way of expressing emotion based on his upbringing. And it calls into question whether or not he actually received a fair trial based on the Supreme Court's own descriptions of what that means. Totally. And when you actually back up and think about these subjective displays of emotion and people's ability to do that or not, I mean, the whole thing is so silly in a way, right? And it even goes back to this idea, which is maybe not that related, but was struck me when I was reading the book, even the idea of smiling, right, and expressing happiness and pressure on women in particular to smile. Oh, yeah. And how, for me, that's not, it is not necessarily a expression. I'm not alone in that of I'm happy, I'm smiling. That is not, when we think of, when you take any any number of steps back, objectively, we all express emotion in a, obviously in a completely different way. And smiling is feels like a forced gesture. Yeah, you know, sometimes you smile when you're plotting your the demise of your enemy. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> 
So when it comes to expressing emotion, variability is the norm. I mean, think about what you do when you're angry. Sometimes you raise your voice. Sometimes you pound your fist. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you laugh in the face of fear. Sometimes you sit silently and plot the demise of your enemy. Sometimes you cry in, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. Totally. And I think that, you know, one of the things that you talk about a lot in your book is about emotional granularity and both how we lack the language. And I think also we, as a culture, do not do a good job of understanding, is this anger, am I feeling frustrated? Am I feeling humiliated? Am I feeling boiling rage? Am I feeling wronged? You know, there's so much, There's it's such a spectrum that... I think, too, in our tendency to group everything into concepts of this is what anger is, we lose we lose an even we lose understanding of what is actually happening by attaching it to what we think is happening. It's a really interesting situation full of contradictions. So on the one hand, our culture has very strong stereotypes about what it means to be angry. You scowl when you're angry. It turns out actually people only scowl about 20 to 30% of the time when they're angry. But the stereotype is that you scowl when you're angry, you raise your voice when you're angry, you might make a threatening gesture when you're angry. But if you look at movies and television, I mean, you know, when's the last time somebody won an Academy Award for scowling when they're angry, (laughs) right? So we sort of have an appreciation in the arts and in literature and so on for the tremendous variability in the way that people express emotion But in science, we sort of have a science of emojis, you know, Mm -hmm. of the scowling in anger and gasping in fear and so on. It turns out actually that the wide-eyed gasping face, which is supposed to be an expression of fear, the universal expression of fear, is actually the stereotype of an anger expression in certain parts of the world. Right. So even though there are these, you know, beliefs that are entrenched and that, you know, a... AI and uh, lots of emotion technology companies are basing a lot of their technological development on these stereotypes. We That's have great. <laughs> yeah. We have we have art, we have literature, we have film, and we have each other to illustrate that in fact expressions of emotion are quite variable. And really what your brain is doing like right now you and I are talking to each other and we're actually looking at each other And we're looking at each other's faces, Mm -hmm. but actually your brain is taking in the entire situation. Your attention is on my face, but your brain's actually taking in my body posture, my tone of voice, the context that we're in. It's recording your body temperature. It's it's actually recording like a whole event. Mm -hmm. And it's making an inference about what I might be feeling or thinking based on that entire sequence of changes in that event. Right. And obviously when we solely, or this this cultural belief that we can rely solely on the visual cues to determine emotion, I mean, you it feeds stereotypes, as you said, it feeds bias. Like even in my own life, I have I have been told that I have resting bitch face, right? <laughs> but that's just my natural expression. And when I when I listen, I listen with an intensity that looks 
angry. Yeah, you're not the only one. So I have to say, I mean, we did a study in my lab where we analyzed pictures of people who had been labeled as having resting bitch face. And their faces are actually just neutral. There's just no expression there, right? So they're just completely neutral. So the perceiver, the person who's looking at the expressor, is making an inference, right? That's what our brains do. So the way that our brains work, we don't actually detect things in the world. We infer what we expect to see. We don't do it consciously. It happens very automatically, but we infer what we expect to see. And then information comes from the world and it either confirms our expectations or it adjusts them. And so part of the story here is that, you know, you're never reading someone's expression. You're just guessing at what their movements mean. And you're guessing potentially using stereotypes, right? So, And some of these stereotypes are very gendered, Mm -hmm. um, getting back to the idea that women should be smiling all the time and should never be angry. And these stereotypes are wrong. You know, a lot of people, when they're concentrating, do what you do, which is knit your brow probably and focus in. My husband, actually, when he's concentrating really hard and paying a lot of attention, makes a full facial scowl, which looks like the stereotype of an anger expression. He's not angry. He's just really concentrating. But even now, after 25 years of being married to him and, you know, studying emotion as a scientist for a living for 25 years or more, he sometimes will be scowling at me and I'll be like, is everything okay? (laughs) (laughs) And now he can say, read your own book, you know, like... (laughs) And I do it too, you know, so I didn't realize that I did it, but actually my students would get very, very, very anxious to present in front of me because, you know, I'd be making like a full facial scowl at them because I'm paying close attention to everything they say. Yeah, totally. This is so validating. But so when we think about how emotions are made, essentially they are they're taught, right? Or they're not, they're learned. They're learned. So sometimes people will say, you know, are you saying that emotions aren't hardwired into the brain? And my answer is, listen, we have the kind of brain that isn't fully formed when we're born, right? A miniature, I should say, an infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that is waiting for a set of wiring instructions from the world. Mm -hmm. And everything that we do with that infant, all the words that we speak, the way we cuddle the infant or not, the way we feed the infant or not, all of these things actually wire that infant's brain. And so the way to understand it is, is something like this, that, you know, your brain is always regulating your body. It's always, it's always sort of controlling the systems in your body. The systems in your body, like your heart and your lungs and so on, send sensory information back to your brain. But the sensory information is ambiguous. Your brain doesn't know what what caused it. Mm -hmm. So an ache in your gut could be caused by many, many, many different events. And so your brain has to guess. And those guesses that your brain is making, the last time I was in this situation and I had this ache in my gut, what, what happened and what did I do? This is your brain making sense of these sensations from your body and in a way that you've learned to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you know, information is coming in from your body and your brain has to guess at what that information means, what caused that ache in your gut so that your brain can figure out what to do next, 
Do you need to hug someone? Do you need to eat? Do you need to lie down? Do you need to get yourself to a doctor? What your brain is doing is it's using past experience. That's what that has been wired into the brain from birth. So you're using things that you've learned to make sense of what sensations in your body mean. Mm -hmm. And this is how an ache in your stomach can be hunger, or it can be anxiety, or it can be longing, or it can be disgust. Um, this is how an ache in your chest can be excitement, or can be anger, or can be anxiety, or can be the beginnings of a heart attack, actually. Right. And so based on your life experience, you're drawing, you're anticipating what's going to happen, right? You're, it's predictive. Yeah. So all of this is predictive. So that's the, the really surprising part. And I have to say that, you know, this, this scientific story that I tell in this book, if I wasn't a scientist, I'm seriously not sure I would actually believe it because it so violates our experience of what it feels like to have an emotion, right? You you don't have any awareness of your brain kind of making guesses. You don't have any awareness of your brain weighing probabilities. You don't have any awareness of your brain making meaning out of sensations. It's something that happens automatically. It takes longer to talk about it than it does to actually happen. And you largely have very little agency or control over it in the moment. It's just kind of running on autopilot. And so basically, your brain works like this. If we were to freeze time, so in your brain right now, if we were to freeze time, your brain has a representation of what's going on inside your body. What's the state of your heart? What's the state of your lungs? What's the state of glucose? What's the state of salt? And it has a representation of what's going on around in the, in the world. So what, what are the sights and sounds and smells and so on? And using that information, it projects itself forward in time to make a guess about what's going to happen. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Next. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. While I can easily and happily take down a box of my kids' leftover mac and cheese, I also believe that food can be medicine. I try to always have some fresh vegetables, fruit, and solid basics in our house, and to eat relatively clean as my baseline. We've also tried to clean up other aspects of our kitchen. We avoid single-use products and try to keep plastic out of the kitchen as much as possible. That's not always easy, particularly with kids, but there are some alternatives that have proven far superior. 
And I love the new non-toxic non-stick frying pan set that the Goop team collaborated on with Green Pan. Traditionally, a lot of the non-stick coating options are made from plastic synthetics, but Green Pan skips the toxins and uses a ceramic non-stick coating. Their pans are great for sauteing vegetables, searing fish or meat, steaming rice, or throwing together a quick stir fry. And it's still a really simple cleanup, no soaking and no scrubbing required, which makes the end of dinner a lot more pleasant. The new green pan set that's exclusive to the Goop shop comes with an eight inch and 10 inch frying pan. And surprise, they're really chic looking frying pans. The pans are a blush pink color and the stainless steel handles are gold toned. So yeah, they make for a pretty goopy addition to your kitchen or sweet gift to someone else's. You can find the exclusive Green Pan blush set in the Goop shop. And you can find much more from Green Pan at greenpan.us. Use code Goop20 at checkout for 20% off all Green Pan cookware. That's greenpan.us and use code Goop20 for 20% off the Green Pan site. In my past life, I did video segments on things like the importance of a statement earring, which is hilarious for a few reasons that we don't need to go into here. I've never felt fully competent when it comes to the world of beauty, but there's one person who has made it more accessible and taught me more about beauty than anyone else. You probably know who I'm talking about. That would be the one and only Jean Godfrey June, the star of Goop's Ask Jean column, and much more. Jean and I met years ago when we both worked at Lucky Magazine. She's a real legend in the industry. And for the past few years at Goop, she's had a pretty amazing sidekick in our beauty editor, Megan O'Neill, who is also a Lucky alum. You might recognize Megan from her own Goop column, Megan Tries It. And now, Jean and Megan are starting their own Goop podcast series called The Beauty Closet. The first season, which is 10 episodes, has just launched with Gwyneth as their first guest. GP's episode is followed by Jean and Megan's dream lineup of top makeup artists, dermatologists, clean beauty founders, researchers, and plastic surgeons. Every conversation on the beauty closet is a little different, but each one seeks to answer the questions about beauty that we hear women asking the most. Whether that's about lasers and injectables, perfecting the no makeup makeup look, or the secret to glowy skin. Or about rethinking the way we define beauty and what it means to feel pretty or sexy. And whether we can or should try to sustain that as we get older. Or as GP puts it in her episode, what happens to your identity as a woman if you're not considered fuckable? Which actually sounds pretty great coming from GP. So there's a lot to unpack, and Megan and Jean are just total characters when they're together. You have to listen to hear what I mean. Start with the first episode with GP, and then subscribe to The Beauty Closet to keep up with new episodes, which will be landing on Wednesdays. For more info, head to goop.com slash beautyclosetpodcast. Okay, let's hear more from Lisa Barrett. I would imagine that those predictions, like muscles become stronger and stronger the more they're exercised. Like that's probably where a lot of rutting behavior comes from, Exactly, exactly. So the way we would say it, in psychology, you know, uh, a group of things which are similar in some way is called a category. And a mental representation of a category is called a concept. So what your brain is doing is it's making concepts on the fly using past experience to make predictions about what's going to happen next, what what your brain needs to do next, what you're going to feel next, what you're going to see next. And the more you make the same concepts over and over again, 
the faster you get at it, the more the neurons become wired together in a way to easily make those connections, to make those concepts. Um, I mean, you know, in point of fact, neurons aren't actually wired together. They just pass chemicals to each You're other. Such so a scientist. I know, I'm sorry. Every time I say that wired, you know, neurons that that fire together, wire together. And then I hear my engineering colleagues go, neurons are not circuits. They're not wired together. They pass chemicals to each other. So, but I mean, basically, that's right. It's like, you know how you've learned any skill or you learn how to drive. And, you know, at first you've got to like concentrate. And you have to really make an effort and you have to pay attention to every little thing. But eventually, if you practice enough, it becomes pretty automated, you know, so you can do all kinds of things in the car when you're driving. You can sing songs. You can talk to your friends. You should never text when you're driving. Yes, mom. Um, That's because if your brain is making the same concepts again and again and again, it becomes really automated in doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, I would imagine that an extreme, you're you're talking about something like PTSD, right? And But then the micro trauma of our childhoods and those early memories, and I guess even in adulthood, must form the same. Like if you find that you're very run by your emotions, or so you seem to think, yeah. typically you're probably tapping into... Yeah, you are. But I want to try to separate two things in what you said, which are somewhat biologically distinct. Okay. Because I think it's it's important and it's going to take a little setup to do it. Go for so, it. So in science, we make a distinction between affect and emotion. And this is a really useful distinction to make in your everyday life also. So your brain is basically running a budget for your body. It's regulating your body, the systems in your body. And it's doing that by running kind of like, you could think of it like running a budget. There's actually a technical name for this. It's termed allostasis, but we'll just call it the body budget. So in the same way that a company might have an office that makes sure that the expenditures and revenues are all balanced so that the company doesn't go bankrupt, your brain is doing that for your body. It's not budgeting money. It's budgeting glucose and salt and water and all sorts of nutrients and so on. And it's doing it predictively because it's very efficient to anticipate the needs of the body and then try to meet those needs before they arise. Like if your brain's going to stand you up, it's going to raise your blood pressure before it stands you up so that oxygen can still get to your brain when you stand up. Otherwise, you might faint and that's metabolically costly, which would be bad. You'd be incurring a deficit, right? (laughs) Okay. And so your brain is always regulating your body. It's always managing your body budget. And you always have sensations that are caused by that body budget managing that make their way to the brain. So, but most of the time, you don't feel your heart beating and your lungs expanding and all of the, um, the whole sort of sensory symphony inside your own body, because if you did, you'd never pay attention to anything outside your own skin ever again. Whenever you're sick and you feel just compelled and un- by your physical sensations and unable to get outside your own body, you know, in a sense, you know, when you have a stomach ache or menstrual cramps or, or a headache or what have you, well, you, you know, that's revealing to you the, the sort of the internal drama that's going on biologically. But most of the time, we're really unaware of it. Like right now, we're you and I are just sitting across from each other and we're sitting still mostly. 
but there's a whole drama of movement going on inside each of our own bodies that we're completely unaware of. And instead, what evolution has given us is a kind of a workaround, which we call affect. It's these feelings of feeling pleasant or feeling unpleasant, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable, feeling really worked up and jittery, or feeling really tranquil and calm. And these, the ebb and flow of affective feeling is with you every waking moment of your life because your brain is always regulating your body and your body is always sending sensory signals. And the way that you can kind of keep track of the state of your body is with these feelings of affect. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have an affective feeling that is, I should say this happens in episodes of emotion, but it also happens when you're thinking and it happens just when you're watching a movie and it happens when you're even when you're sleeping actually and so affect is really these affective feelings are really a property of consciousness they're not specifically about emotion however when you feel very pleasant or you feel very unpleasant when you feel really uncomfortable that means that there's some mm, something's happened in your body budget that requires fixing and but what does uh, unpleasant feeling mean? Like, what does an ache mean? We don't know, right? We, mm-hmm. Your brain has to guess. And so it's using past experience to guess at what the sensations mean. And it when it when those guesses are how the brain turns affect into emotion or into thinking mm-hmm. or into perceptions, right? So if I'm driving on the highway and somebody cuts me off and I think, what an asshole, right? with a lot of like heat, my experience is not that I'm angry. My experience is that guy is an asshole. Mm -hmm. And the affect is part of the perception of that guy being an asshole. I'm not experiencing my affect in that case as a property of my reaction to him. I'm experiencing it as a property of him. Mm -hmm. You know, we say, oh, you're a nice person. That's a delicious drink. This is a beautiful painting. This is us embedding affect as part of the properties of the things in the world. Mm -hmm. So when you feel run by your emotions, really what's happening is probably you have an unbalanced body budget for some reason that's causing you a lot of distress. And you're so you have a lot of affect like intense, persistent affect, and your brain is making sense of it as emotion. But you don't have to make sense of it as emotion. You can make sense of affect in any way that in any way that's available to you based on the concepts that you can make. So let me give you an example, which is a true story, actually. So my daughter, when she was 12 years old, was uh, and she was this tiny little thing, twelve-year-old thing, little girl, testing for a black belt in karate, and everyone else around her was much older and much bigger than her, and her sensei was a tenth-degree black belt, so it was a scary dude, and he did not. His, the sensei did not look at my daughter and say, "Don't be anxious." He looked at her and said, "Get your butterflies flying in formation." Mm. Now. That was an amazing thing to say because he wasn't saying to her, calm yourself down. He was saying, be determined. That arousal that you feel is not anxiety, it's determination. Mm. And it turns out there's a whole series of studies that have been done 
which teach people to take this jittery feeling that they have and transform it from anxiety into determination so that they reduce their test anxiety and they can take tests in college. And this may sound like a trivial thing, but it's not a trivial thing because test anxiety can interfere with people taking tests. It can cause them to fail courses. It often causes people to drop out of college. Getting a college degree actually changes your the trajectory of your income in very substantial ways for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So training people not to immediately make sense of their internal sensations that they feel as jittery feelings as anxiety, but instead as determination, or maybe as curiosity, or maybe as kind of wonder, that actually has a huge impact on people's ability to do productive things like finish college and get a good job. And I think it's particularly important to talk about this now because right now we are in a situation, we're in a cultural moment where we have record rates of anxiety and depression in young people in particular. Um, We have record rates of suicide in young people and in the elderly. And we also live in a culture that is maximally designed, it seems, to disrupt everybody's body budgets. Mm -hmm. People, so the kinds of things that make it hard for your brain to regulate your body budget well and keep that body budget solvent, the things that make it hard are things like not getting enough sleep, not eating healthfully, not exercising enough. And I know now I really do sound like a mom, but I'm actually being a neuroscientist mom. <laughs> so so sleeping enough, eating properly, getting enough exercise, these are all things that actually make it easier. They make deposits into your body budget and they make it easier for your brain to keep your body healthy and regulated and therefore they reduce discomfort and distress, which your brain will make into negative emotions. But the other piece of this that I want to point out is that how... You know, we are social animals. And what that means is that we don't, we also regulate each other's body budgets. Right now, you and I are making deposits into, I hope, into each other's <laughs> body budgets. We could also make withdrawals, right? And we impact each other nervous systems in a way that we are largely unaware of, particularly in our culture where we have this idea about the importance of individual rights and freedoms, right? We should be able to do whatever we want. We should be able to say whatever we want. Unfortunately, that doesn't come go along with a resp- sense of responsibility for the consequences of what we do and say. And um, and so, you know, social life in some ways is maximally designed, it seems right now, to be taxing to people's body budgets in ways that people find a hard, they find it hard to believe and also hard to grapple with. But the evidence is, is really clear that um, I can just, I can say three words to you. In fact, I can just text three words to you, even if we've never met and we've never seen each other in person and you've never heard my voice and I can affect your body budget. Mm-hmm. I can make your heart rate go up. I can make it go down. I can make norepinephrine flow. I can make cortisol flow. I can do a lot just by saying a couple of words to you. And so we're impacting each other's body budgets all the time. And we are, we can make uh, it easier. We can be making deposits or we can make it harder. We can be making withdrawals. So, and then, so 
theoretically, in an idea, if you have as, and I guess you don't have that much control over your body budget outside of regulating sleep and diet and. So you do, I think. So I guess here's what I would say. I mean, one, you do have more control, but your control is, is not in the moment. Your control is in architecting your life in a way that that um, your your window of control is is much broader, right? So, one thing that you can do is you can you can sleep, get eight hours of sleep. You can eat healthfully. You can exercise. Another thing that you can do is you can expose yourself to situations that will be making deposits instead of withdrawals. I mean, sometimes withdrawals are appropriate. Sometimes you need to spend, right? Mm-hmm. So what does that mean, spending, in, in body budget terms? What are the most expensive things that your brain can do? It can move your body, like when you exercise. You make a big withdrawal when you exercise, and then you, you know, you replenish, right? You mm-hmm. replenish that budget. You can learn something new. Learning something new is taxing. Sometimes learning is actually hard, and it feels unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, but that unpleasantness is a sign that you're working hard. It's not a sign that something is wrong. That's the kind of withdrawal you want to be able to make. Mm -hmm. Innovating or being creative is you're making a withdrawal. You are doing something that actually has a metabolic cost that is substantial. And again, if that metabolic cost goes on for too long, you're going to start to feel unpleasant. But that unpleasantness isn't necessarily a sign um, that anything is wrong in the moment because Either you have investments that you can draw on, right, from the past, or uh, you're going to replenish, you know, after you've expended. So not all discomfort is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're already running a deficit, you're not going to feel like moving your body very Mm -hmm. much. You're going to feel fatigued. If you're already running a deficit, you're not going to be able to learn new things that are hard. You're not going to be able to talk to people who violate your expectations, who are really different from you, who people who, you know, you've never, you you either have never met before who are really different from you or who have ideas that are really different mm-hmm. from you. You won't be able to, when you're faced with interpersonal conflict or political turmoil, you'll withdraw. You'll, you know, basically live in an echo chamber, only listening and watching and seeing things that already makes sense to you because you don't have the metabolic resources. You don't have the body budgeting resources to go and try something hard. Right. So how do you, because we, you know, we hear a lot about people who are run by their, you know, triggering and all of that, which I know is in a way it's a fallacy, but for when, for, for people who are taking that negative affect and turning it into emotion that then creates a sort of vicious cycle in their lives, right? How do you, is there a way to recondition or tell yourself new stories about how to react? Absolutely. So I would say, you know, so one thing you can do is, you know, keep your body budget balanced uh, or at least give it, give your body what it needs to, to keep that body budget solvent. Another thing that you can do is you can practice making concepts. You can learn to make new concepts that are really productive, that you now you'll have to invest a little energy. It's going to take a little cost at first, but eventually it gets pretty automatic and there's no cost at all. So, for example, one thing that people find really useful is to cultivate awe or wonder 
curiosity. So instead of being frustrated and angry, you know, take a step back and try to cultivate, use that as a cue to cultivate curiosity or wonder or awe. I kind of like wonder as a, an emotion concept because it implies, you know, it's not just a pleasant feeling, it's also sort of an expansive curiosity, an openness to things being different than what you currently believe or what you currently know. And that's a really useful one to practice. I think awe is, can also be really useful. So, and you can practice it in the smallest ways, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're walking uh, on the street and you see weed popping up through the sidewalk, cracking the sidewalk, or you see the sidewalk buckled because uh, of, a, of a tree um, root, that's great. You can look at that and you can cultivate a moment of awe because nature is powerful and will not be contained by civilization, you know, by sidewalks. And, <laughs> and that may sound like a trivial, you know, kind of Jedi mind trick kind of thing. But actually, if you practice that ability to make new concepts in novel ways, um, then your brain actually, it becomes more equipped to do it kind of automatically. And what what that means is that you have much more flexibility over making sense of whatever affect is, is of making available to you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Lisa Barrett. For more on Lisa, make sure to get a copy of her book, How Emotions Are Made. You can also check her out at lisafeldmanbarrett.com. That's B-A-R-R-E-T-T. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. How do you stop trying to parent the things that remind you of the things you don't like about yourself out of your children? Asked Michelle. Oh my God, Michelle. I could talk about this for a really long time because my son and I are so similar. We have such similar good and bad qualities that he's super triggering to me in a way that my daughter is not. And Moses and I talk about this all the time. So when he's annoyed at me, he'll be like, oh, it's so annoying how similar we are. You are triggering me, mom. And I'll say the same. <laughs> but it's really amazing. It's like it reminds me of a saying in AA that a really close friend of mine has been in AA for years and years. And there's incredible wisdom that comes out of that program. And he says, you know, there, the phrase in AA is, if you spot it, you got it. Meaning, if you see something in somebody else that's triggering, that means it's within you and it's unresolved and that's why it's triggering you. So I just say it out loud. I mean, to me, that's the best way to diffuse it. I say, well, sometimes I react and I'll be annoyed with my son or I'll say, you know, make up your mind or get in the car, we're late, all of the stuff that I do to my husband, for example. And then I'll be like, God, you you really trigger me because I have the same exact, I have the same trouble making my up my mind. I have the same trouble getting in the car on time. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.